And I want you to listen now to the Word of God from the 23rd chapter of the Gospel according to Luke, beginning with verse 33. We are approaching these days. We are right now into the last hours, days, at the most a couple of weeks, of what makes Christianity, Christianity, and the basis for our being here. And when they were come to the place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him. And the malefactors, one on the right hand and the other on the left, then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they parted his raiment and cast lots. And the people stood beholding, and the rulers also with them derided him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he be Christ the chosen of God. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming to him and offering him vinegar and saying, If you are the Christ of God, save yourself. Now there was also an inscription written above him, This is the king of the Jews. It was written in Latin and Greek and Hebrew or Aramaic. Latin, the language of power. Greece, Greek, the language of culture. Hebrew, the language of religion. King of kings and Lord of lords. Let's join our hands and hearts together as we pray to him. We come to you, our majesty, our magnificent and triumphant redeemer, defeater of death, the door to heaven, and the prince of peace in every heart and every life. Dear Lord, this is your service. We come here to honor you. We come here because you have blessed us and strengthened us. And we come here because we need a fresh touch of the fellowship of these people. For how often your word comes to us through the hands that we hold and the teachers that we listen to and the people we sing with and corral and the folks we talk to in the corridor. We thank you, Father, for having many voices. We thank you for speaking to us through the wonderful statements of little children through the magnificent music that is sung, through prayers that are prayed, and in and through it all, the presence of your Spirit permeating this place, this preacher, these people, this message in music and in song, to the end that every one of us will acknowledge in truth. He is King of kings and Lord of lords in our lives. Lord, we worship your Son. Amen. The defining moment in Jesus' life was his crucifixion. Without his death, we would not be here. The defining moment is the death of Jesus Christ for the sins of the world. 
There is no such thing as a crossless Christianity. No such thing as a crossless Christianity. Without the cross, no Christianity. Without the cross, no forgiveness. Without the cross, no salvation. Without the cross, no promise of heaven. Without the cross, we are of all men most miserable. I read a man who analyzed biographies and uh, made the statement in his analysis that in nearly all biographies written, less than 10% of the story of the person's life had to do with their death. 10% or less of the person's life had to do with the death of the individual. Most of it had to do with the life of the person. Now, when you take the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the records we have of Jesus' life, his birth, his life, his ministry, his miracles, when you take those four Gospels and you put them together as a unit and then look at the total amount of space in that combination of those four, you look at the total amount of space allocated to that last week leading up to and into the crucifixion, and you will find that 40% of the four Gospels deals with the events of the last week of Jesus' life, with his death. It is the defining moment for the salvation of the world and for the, and for the Christian faith itself. This last uh, week or so I've been reading in my Harmony of the Gospels or Gospel Parallels as it's sometimes called where the scriptures are placed side by side uh, chronologically as much as possible. Reading through those last uh, days of Jesus' life really beginning with the 11th chapter of John and the raising of Lazarus from the dead and then the party at Simon the, Fer- uh, the, Simon the leper's house uh, on then through uh, that remainder of that week. The thing that impressed me more and more as I, as I read it and, and contemplated it and tried to get into it with my own mind and imagination, it came to me, and I would urge you to reread those passages as well and see if you have the same impression, that in that last week, everybody was on trial except Jesus. Everybody was on trial except Jesus. He was the central son, S-O-N and S-U-N, of God. And in his presence, his light is is dispersed to the people around. And it is that light that brings judgment, that brings introspection, that brings confession. The central event... And the trial of Jesus 
was the fact that you and I, representatives of those people then, or they representatives of us now, were the ones that were on trial. Religion was on trial. The power of politics, the state was on trial. And countless individuals, countless individuals. Maybe the only time in history, I'm sure it is the only time in history, in which the jury and the witnesses were the ones on trial. And the accused was the judge. Paradox of paradoxes. This prompted me, and I urge you to think about it. I I read this from a Bible teacher's book a few weeks ago. And it challenged me, and it it, uh, has stimulated my own thinking. And maybe it'll do the same for you, for you. He challenged me to read the New Testament, not me personally, but through his book. The book challenged me to read the New Testament, as he suggested, for a year. Read it for a year with the thought in mind, not of, to read it differently. Instead of reading it as though we are standing there as Christians, we're standing there as believers in Jesus, we're standing there saying amen to everything he says, that we're standing there kind of behind him or beside him, and Jesus is standing there with his arm around us, and he's saying these things to all of those other folks out there. My friends, we are the other folks out there. We are the other folks out there. Tendency. In each of us, The potential in each of us, the propensity within each of us is to be a Judas, a Pilate, a Caiaphas, a Simon Peter. Every one of us have within us, because of our Adamic nature, the infection of sin within us. And every one of us capable of doing anything and everything those people did. We need to be careful that our pride goes before our fall. Take heed, lest you yourself. Become Judas. Mary Magdalene, full of all kinds of problems and difficulties. We're we're Mary Magdalene. We are Bartimaeus. We're Zacchaeus, more concerned with profit than people. We're the man at the pool of Bethesda who enjoys being ill because he gets attention from others. 
We're the Pharisees. Judging others. Putting conditions upon others. Getting locked into a legalism that condemns others. I've been convicted myself. I, I, I detest prejudice. I oppose prejudice in any and every form. And it distresses me that there's such an epidemic of it in in America today, in the world today. And I speak out against prejudice, and I'm opposed to discrimination. And the more I examine my own heart in the light of what this Bible teacher is saying to me, to see myself not as a part of the sanctified crowd standing up there behind Jesus, but the sinful crowd standing out there in front of him, I came to see that I was becoming prejudiced against those who are prejudiced. The incredible capacity of the human heart to deceive ourselves. We are on trial before this man. We are. Let me show you now quickly. I want to uh, give a quick run through because we'll be dealing with this more the next couple of Sundays. I want you to watch with me the disintegration of the disciples. Uh, It started a little earlier, but you see it break out there at the home of Simon the leper when Mary was anointing the feet of Jesus before his crucifixion. And uh, Judas protested and he said, uh, oh, that's a waste of money. That's a whole year's salary for that perfume. Jesus praised her, praised her extravagance of love and said that wherever the gospel is preached, it will be told as a memorial to her. But here's Judas saying, well, that money could have been used for something better than perfume. Could have cared for the poor. And what surprises me is that none of the other disciples protested that. I mean, wasting time and effort and energy and money to, do, to just bring praise and honor to God and not do something, quote, practical with it. And this is the man who a few days later would betray his Lord for 30 pieces of silver. <coughs> in, today, in today's currency, <coughs> $19.50. You see Judas beginning to disintegrate. They left there and they started toward the upper room in that last, those last last days of Jesus' life. And the disciples were walking along there and they got into an argument among themselves. Now here they'd been with Jesus for three years. They'd heard him. They, They caught something of his spirit. They listened to his teaching. They'd witnessed his miracles. And here they are walking along, arguing about which one of them was going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. Which one of us is going to be the CEO of the kingdom of God? Which one of us is going to be the chairman of the board of the the kingdom of God? Which one of us will be the chief financial officer of the kingdom of God? And they got into an argument. Even the mother, James and John, came in, put a word in for her son, said, help my boys get a place of prominence. 
Here this man who had done nothing but serve others, give himself to others, say that you save your life by giving it. Suddenly these people that had been the closest to him for three years of any group of people in history were all caught up in their own personal agenda. What am I going to get? I don't know, but I can, we don't get any body language recorded in the scripture. But I can imagine Jesus walking along, listening to that argument, kind of shaking his head like. Then they get up in the upper room and they're all swelled up with pride, you know, and they're sitting around in a circle and no one's going to wash the other person's feet. They're important now. They're leaders now. They're decision makers. Jesus said, no, you're servants. He took off his cloak, put a towel around him, washed their feet. Who was on trial that day? Then he said this, and I read from the 26th chapter of Matthew, beginning with verse 31. Then Jesus said to them, You will all, listen to that, parenthetically, let me remind you that at this point Judas had already left. Jesus knew that he was leaving. Jesus knew what he was doing. Judas had left. The other disciples were not cognizant of that fact. But Judas had left. And now Jesus is talking to the rest of them, to the rest of us. You will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, I will strike down the shepherd and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. They didn't even hear that. That just went right over their head. They were just caught up in that startling statement that he made that you're going to deny me before... Tonight, you're going to deny me tonight. You're going to forsake me tonight. You're going to fall away tonight. You're going to drop me like a hot potato tonight. Didn't you hear that? And then he talks about his resurrection. They couldn't make that jump at all in their minds, and they they didn't. Peter answered and said to him, Even though... All may fall away because of you. I will never fall away. I will never deny you. Put the medal around my neck. Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you that this very night, Before a cock crows, you shall deny me three times. Peter said to him, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. All the disciples said the same thing too. We say that. We make that boast. We claim this personal, marvelous, spiritual, esoteric relationship with the Lord, the potential 
for denial is in every one of us. In every one of us. And the difference between Judas and Peter is not a, is, is, is a difference only in degree, not in kind. Only in degree. But in kind. You don't have to sell him for 30 pieces of silver. He can be sold for a lot less. He can be denied more socially acceptably. And then you turn to that same chapter, the 55th and 56th verses. At the same time, Jesus said to the multitude, well, let me, let, me, let me get to that. Let me back up a minute. They left the upper room, walked across the temple area, down the brook Kedron, up into the Garden of Gethsemane. Here was Jesus, deeply disturbed, distressed and concerned about what was going to happen to him, getting ready for it. And he took his disciples to the place of prayer, the Garden of Gethsemane. And he said to the disciples, you all stay here and pray for me. Pray for me. I'm going through a terrible ordeal. I need your prayers. And then he took his closest friends. He loved them all the same, but he had a closer personal relationship, obviously, with Peter, James, and John. He said, Peter, James, John, come with me. And they came, and he said, uh, he probably put his arms around him. He said, pray for me. Please stand by me in prayer. And then he went on a little further. And the English translations are inadequate in communicating exactly what the Scripture says. He went on a little further by himself, and it says he literally threw himself on the ground. Not just a quiet sort of kneeling. It was like you would take a towel and throw it on the ground. He prays and sweats as it were great drops of blood. And he goes back to get reinforcement and encouragement from Peter, James, and John. And they're asleep. And he wakes them up and says, couldn't you pray with me one hour? His entire human support system was disintegrating. His closest friends, his closest followers, his whole <coughs> human world, physical world, of support and encouragement like all of us have so much of. All of that was gone. Prayed some more and went back and they'd gone to sleep a second time. Let me parenthetically insert a thought here that I think you need to remember. That there were a few people who stood by Jesus. I'm talking about his disciples, his closest followers, the 
supposed leaders of his work. But I want to take you a little further down the road to when Jesus was being led out to be crucified. A group of women were with him, crying for him and praying for him. And when they got to the place of the skull, to the cross, they put Jesus on the cross. Uh, a couple of years ago in Israel, we visited this park that is developing the uh, like wine presses and uh, granaries and all that existed uh, in Jesus' day and before. And <clears throat> there, uh, and I was I was startled by it. They had a cross. Now, when I've seen portraits or paintings or interpretations of the cross, it's always that the cross is like twenty feet high. Uh, stretching up uh, the three crosses and down below the crowd and in the distance the mountains and beyond you can see the rolling thunderheads of an ominous sky. But that's an artist's interpretation. That's not the way it happened. He was crucified on a cross that made his feet only about one foot off the ground. You could touch his face. You could look into his eyes. You could hear every whisper that he uttered. That's why they could pick up everything that he said. Not up and above and beyond. Right there. That grabbed my mind and my thought. I don't know what it was about the reality of the fact that it was there. And there were some women. Mary, mother, Mary the wife of Cleophas, Mary Magdalene. Scripture indicates that John maybe showed up later. But the women were there. Have you noticed in reading your Bible no woman ever betrayed him? No woman ever denied him. No one ever cursed his name. Not one. Where were the men? The men. And one verse leaps out to grab my mind, and maybe it will yours as well. The Scripture says that Mary, Jesus' mother, Mary stood by the cross. Right there. Stood! Thank God for the women through the years, and the women in this church, and the women in the kingdom of God who stood by Jesus. God only knows where the church would be today were it not for devoted, committed women who stand by the faith. And every man ought to say amen. Kind of a weak amen. (laughs) Part of our problem, isn't it? Weak amen. I'll move quickly to 
Simon Peter, they arrested Jesus. They took Jesus. They came. He came back and waked him up. And, and one of Steve's pictures it shows a, uh, it's taken from the Garden of Gethsemane with an olive tree that could be 2,000 years old. Some say it is. And in the distance, you can see uh, the, the gate out of which they would have come out of the temple. And, and they could, you could see it from the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus came back and waked them up. And he said, wake up. It's over. They're coming. I can see them coming. And so here they come, and now the disciples are all alive and awake, and here they come to arrest Jesus. So what does Simon Peter do? He gets in a fight, takes out a sword, tries to kill a man. Jesus tells him to put it up. And they arrest Jesus, and they start taking him to the house of Caiaphas. Now I'll read you that verse of Scripture I alluded to a moment ago, the 55th verse of the 26th chapter and following. At that time, Jesus said to the multitudes, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as against a robber? Every day I used to sit in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place, that the scripture of the prophets may be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Left him. Peter followed afar off to the house of Caiaphas and stood outside by the fire burning. And three times a young woman said, Oh, you look like one of his followers. No, I'm not. Yeah, you look like one of his followers. No, I'm telling you, I'm not. Third time, you look, sound like one of his followers. And then he cursed. He said, I am not blank, 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 blank one of his followers. And if you notice, they never ask him again. About that time, Jesus was led out from Caiaphas' house on his way to Pilate to be judged and to judge Pilate. And the eyes of Peter and Jesus met. I don't believe there's an artist in the world that can depict what must have occurred between those two people when their eyes met in that moment. The Scripture says Simon went out and wept bitterly. The difference between Simon and Judas. Judas went out and killed himself. Simon went out and wept his way to repentance and restoration and salvation. Not only were all of these people being judged, but religion was being judged legalistic religion, sophisticated religion, the most ethical monotheistic religion in the world at that time was Judaism. And here were the religious leaders plotting the death of Jesus. Now, you hear people say, well, the Jewish people killed Jesus. I do. I disagree with that. That is wrong, both historically and theologically. The crowd of people that welcomed Jesus on Palm they were still trying to get started, getting up early the next morning. The crowd that was in front of Pilate's judgment hall was a picked crowd, picked by the religious leaders to stand there and cry, crucify him, crucify him. And by the time most of the people in that city of Jerusalem had awakened, Jesus was already on the cross. They'd already run him through the gamut. They'd already rough, run roughshod over the law, broken the law in a hundred different places, and they had him on the cross by nine o'clock in the morning. 
So the Jewish people, all of his early followers were Jews. All of his early disciples were Jews. Jewish people didn't kill Jesus. Religious legalism killed Jesus. The Sanhedrin, the leaders, got together and they were the ones that said, this man is going to upset our profitable apple cart. This man is going to upset our interpretation of what the truth is and we're the only ones who know what the truth is. And let me say parenthetically, the Jews are not the only people who have Sanhedrins. Every denomination, even every church, can have its Sanhedrin. We know the truth. We've got it all. Totally, completely, and if you do not agree with us, you are excluded. So the religious leaders, Annas, Caiaphas, and others, went down to make a deal with Pilate so they could eliminate Jesus. Now, you talk about the, the inconsistent paradox of legalism. Here were these men who were plotting the death of an innocent man who were plotting the death of the only perfect man that ever lived, and they went down to talk to Pilate, the Roman procurator, so that he could do it because they couldn't pass the death sentence without Pilate's approval. And they went down to talk to him about it, and Pilate had to come outside of his palace to talk to them because for religious reasons, they could not go inside Pilate's hall because it would contaminate them and make it impossible for them to participate in the Passover. You talk about inconsistency. Can't walk into a certain building because of my religious purity and sanctity, but I can go over here and kill an innocent man in the name of religion. They did it. Legalism. It does it. It's just a form of sin. It's a form of sin that gets baptized. The worst thing we can do is to baptize our vices and call them virtues. The old preachers back in the 100, 150 years ago didn't have as much uh, formal education as a lot of preachers do now but boy they came up with some great sermon ideas they knew, they knew how to preach in such a way that if you never heard a Bi- had a Bible or heard a sermon you could get the message and I don't know whether it was Sam Jones or whether it was Gypsy Smith Sr. or one of those uh, older preachers uh, that had a sermon on Samson and everybody every preacher at one time or another in the college or the seminary when you had to preach and you couldn't think of anything to preach, you could pull out that sermon that has been preached a thousand times by 10,000 preachers. And I don't know who the first person was that preached this sermon on Samson. You know the story of Samson. He had this powerful strength. And he had this long hair and his hair was the source of his strength. And he fell under the wiles of Delilah. And uh, she finally, finally persuaded him to tell her the secret of his power. And he told her and it cut off his hair. And suddenly his strength was gone. What did they do then? What did they do? They came in and they bound him. And then they blinded him. And then they made him do the work of an animal to grind the wheat. 
And the sermon outline was, and you'll never forget it, and if you ever have to preach and need a quick outline, Dean, you've probably done it. John David, you've probably done it. Uh, Wayne, you've probably done it. Sin binds. Sin blinds. And sin grinds. Now, that, amen. Now that, will that not preach? And that's exactly what it, and that's exactly what happened here. Exactly what happened here. Anytime that we become exclusive in our faith and say that if you don't agree with us on every point of doctrine, if you're not complete agreement with everything we're saying and we're doing, if we do not give other people who are part of the priesthood of the believers the right to interpretation and to question and to ask, the day we get to saying you've got to walk in lockstep with us on every single issue, every single interpretation, the moment the church becomes exclusive, we lose the presence of the Spirit of God and the power of His and the power of His illuminating, liberating presence. It's a legend out of Hitler's Germany. When Hitler came to power and a lot of the Lutheran church went along with him in an unholy combination of church and state, there were some strong Lutheran leaders and a number of strong Lutheran Christians who didn't. Otto de Baylius and Martin Niemöller, Dietrich Bonhoeffer and others. But the majority of the Lutheran church sold out to Hitler and he took control of them. And the story is that one Sunday, the pastor got up in the church and he said, I am forced to read an announcement to you that has come from the Fuhrer that everyone in this church who has a Jewish father must leave. And never come back. And a few terribly distressed and surprised parishioners got up and left. And then he said further, the Fuhrer declares that any of you who have a Jewish mother are to leave this church and never come back. Again, a few others, self-consciously, got up, walked out. And in the stillness of that moment, the place was suddenly stunned with silence because behind the pastor, above the altar, was a crucifix and a man on the cross. And slowly, he began to move his hands away from the nails and his feet away from the nails. And he walked out and never came back. The day we put limits on the work of God's Holy Spirit in bringing about liberty and freedom and forgiveness in the heart of anyone, the moment the church becomes 
exclusive instead of inclusive. He walks out. Final quick word about Pilate. The most dramatic story, I suppose, in all of that last week. When you read the story, you can see clearly that Pilate was on trial. He didn't know what to do with Jesus. He tried to defend him. He tried to get a substitute, Barabbas. He tried to reason. This vacillating, undulating man. Indecisive. And he got a note. He received a note from his wife. And she said in the note, Have nothing to do with this just man, for I have suffered many things in a dream tonight because of him. Pilate's wife. Now, Pilate's wife was named Claudia Procula. And she was the granddaughter of Caesar Augustus. She had power, influence. Generally, a, the wife of a Roman procurator or a Roman leader like that would not think of sending a note to her husband or trying in any way to influence him. But she had a lot of strength of character herself. In fact, in the Coptic church, there's some in, in, uh, in Jerusalem, seen a number of them, gone to their worship center. The Coptic church in Africa, the Coptic church has Pilate's wife as one of their saints. She stood up for Jesus in his hour of trial before her husband. What a tragedy it was for Pilate that he didn't take his wife's advice. So he washed his hands of the whole affair figuratively, literally and hopefully figuratively, and sent Jesus out to die. It wasn't many months until there was an uprising in Samaria. Pilate sent troops up there, massacred a lot of the people, and was called back to Rome to answer questions why and even stand trial before the emperor Tiberius. On his way back, Tiberius died, so the case never was tried. But Pilate ended up uh, in the city of Jerusalem, uh, in the city of Rome. And uh, legend has it, that he committed suicide after a while, and they threw his body in the Tiber River. Some took his body out of the Tiber and took it to Gaul, where it was thrown into another river. Some took it out and brought it to Vienna, where some think he was buried. But there are others, and the legend is strong and impressive, that he was then taken to Lausanne, Switzerland. Lucerne, Switzerland, excuse me, to Lucerne, Switzerland. This magnificent, beautiful place, Lake Lucerne. And this huge, beautiful mountain that dominates the landscape that you take a tram and go to the top of and eat and look at the vista is named Mount Pilatus. Named for Pontius Pilate. And the legend is that some nights if you're in the mountains you see the ghost of Pilate walking the mountain 
rubbing his hand. 